Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, and welcome back to the podcast. It is always back to f- well, always back to Formula One. <laughs> <laughs> keep that. Oh, oh keep that. Man. Happy holidays to you too. <laughs> Three guesses. To, let's put it this way: for all of you out there listening, I'll give you one guess to figure out how I've been on holiday for the past week and a half without me telling you that I've been on holiday for a week and a half. When <laughs> right off, like the, the the last show of 2021, I garble our tagline that's uh, been our little thing for years and years. But uh, anyways, welcome back to the podcast. Is always up to speed with Formula One. Mark and Mark here, and we're sitting here now between Christmas and New Year's, kind of relaxing, kind of keeping our heads down because things are kind of going no bueno again with the pandemic. And, you know, it's, you know, seems like we're going backwards, sadly. But anyways, I hope wherever you guys are that uh, you're enjoying the the, the holidays, that uh, that uh, hopefully the weather's seasonable. It's cold here on the, the, the west coast of uh, Canada. It's about minus 10 degrees uh, Celsius at the moment. We both have been dealing with uh, with, with house homeowner issues. Let's uh, put it this way: mine was a little bit more inconvenient to the the, um, the the weather situation, but not quite as destructive as yours. My furnace went on the, <laughs> uh, on the fritz. It would sometimes come on, sometimes it was heating. It would cycle on, but then the the uh, it wouldn't actually start heating, and it got pretty cold in here last night. And uh, anyways, so we had the uh, we we called somebody. They came in this morning, but yours was a somewhat more worrying and destructive issue than mine. My, mine solved, so I'm happy now. But yours was uh, a little bit more concerning. But but you have a family as well of three kids, your wife in your home during the holidays without heat. That. That's a horror show. And Mm -hmm. I think our listeners are probably getting used to us talking about weather now. And it's not just because we don't have a lot of topics to discuss, but the last six months for us have been extreme. You you flash back to the middle of the summer where we had temperatures in the mid 40s Celsius. We're talking 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And we've had temperatures now in the last week down to negative 15 Celsius. So we're talking approaching zero degrees Fahrenheit. The, The extremes have been absurd. And when you talk about the fact that, you know, in six months, We've had an extreme of 60 degrees Celsius centigrade, like just in terms of the variance, it's it's bananas. But we've had a great, and I cannot wait to hear and get an update from you on how your holidays were, but we had a great holidays. We went to my parents' house a couple of days before Christmas. We did a Christmas dinner there on Christmas Eve, which was absolutely fantastic. It's the first time in five years we spent Christmas with my parents, the first time with our little guy. He's now at that age where he's starting to become very much aware of the festive happenings and Mm. was very aware that Santa was coming. Although on Christmas morning, we could not get him out of bed. He wanted to sleep (laughs) in. He wanted to stay in bed where it was warm and watch YouTube kids 
on, on my phone and his favorite gift. And I don't know why we even put it in his stocking. My wife had introduced him to seven up on their vacation when they were in the middle East. Hmm. His favorite gift was that he got a bottle of seven up from Santa. So nice. he's been telling everybody about that. And we've been having to explain, but we uh, came back to the lower mainland. So we've gone to Vancouver Island to see my parents. We came back to the BC lower mainland to Vancouver on the Saturday, Christmas day. We spent Christmas uh, dinner with my wife's parents, uh, went fantastic. And then we came home on the night of Christmas. And for those of you that have been listening the last couple of weeks, we've been doing some renovations at our basement, renovations, wallpaper and mounting a TV on the wall and some acoustic paneling. <laughs> but we've been getting ready to kind of improve the studio so we could do some more creative things this year. And I'd gone down because that's where I'd hidden my wife's Christmas presents. And I, I was a little bit more rich this year than normal, especially with the support that she showed me over the last couple of months. And I went down to get her gifts that night after we came home. And I stepped off the stairs and it was splish, splash, splish, splash. Oh my God. And the basement was flooded on Christmas night. And this is a brand new, new built house. And mm -hmm. the challenge was we can't find, even now we can't find the source of the leak. So it stopped, of course. So the restoration company came that night by myself. I started tearing out all the rotten drywall because it looks like it's a leak that's been ongoing for some time. In fact, last week, my wife had actually noticed a smell and we couldn't figure out where it was coming from, but it was behind the wall. So eventually the water had, I guess, found its way out. Um, on Christmas Eve, I started breaking out and disposing of the rotten uh, mold covered drywall. And then the last couple of days, we've had the restoration crew here making sure that they get the rest of it. And then tomorrow, and of course, getting a restoration crew out during the Christmas holidays, getting a plumber out during this time of year is incredibly complicated. We got lucky. So plumber's coming tomorrow. Hopefully we'll be able to track down the source of the water and then we can start boarding up and returning our house to, to normal. So aside from that, our holidays were fantastic. Last week, we recorded an unbelievably fun interview with Matt Clark, a Canadian Formula 4 racer racing in the F4 US Championship powered by Honda it was a ton of fun, and I will be cheering with for him with all of my heart and all of my voice in 2022, and I know you will be as well. So we're yeah. going to get to that in a little bit here, but that's my update. I think I bored the listeners. Your update, how was your holidays? I know you went away with the family for a couple of days as well. Well, we did the same thing as you did. We went a couple of days before you. We went over to Victoria on Vancouver Island. Uh, we went over there for, I think it was five days. We came back, I think it was like the the 22nd. So we had a couple of days to get ready because we were having uh, my in-laws over for Christmas dinner. So it was uh, it was small, but it was a lot of fun. And of course, uh, we've had a, a ton of snow here in addition to the the, the cold temperatures, which is, we, we usually get a bit of snow every year, but we don't usually get this much and it doesn't usually stay this long. But it's just been really nice and relaxed. And uh, I've, I've been doing a little bit of organizing here in the office downstairs to, it, it's just needed it. It's just become way too cluttered and just trying to make it a, you know, make it a more efficient place to work in again. And uh, so that, that, that was one of the little projects I wanted to do this week and we're going uh, skiing tomorrow my my little guys in ski lessons which is going to be fun up at mount seymour there so we'll, we'll be doing that for the next uh, three days and uh yeah we've just been a really nice relaxed just a really nice you know just quiet christmas holidays and uh, it's just been a, a lot of fun and uh 
that's what we've been really, really enjoying. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't help, uh, but, but laugh, you know, my kids were complaining how cold it was in the house, what with the furnace on, on the fritz. So I, I used one of my dad's classic lines that he used to say to us when we used to complain about being too cold in our house growing outside. So or growing up, he'd say, well, if it's too cold in here, why don't you go stand outside for five minutes? Because by the time you get back inside, it'll feel nice and warm. <laughs> but uh, that would actually be a little bit cruel if I said that to, to, to them considering how uh, how frigid it is outside but uh, it certainly does go nicely for the time of the year and the season and everything like that because it does look like a, a Christmas card around here so Re- yeah. remind me who it was but somebody on Twitter it was either Wallace or Vincenzo had made a, a great observation that in Coquitlam so we live in a really beautiful suburb of Vancouver and our suburb starts effectively at sea level and I yep. think a little bit of our city is even on the water but it progresses upwards into the coast mountains and the way i would position it is this the beautiful lush lavish neighborhoods are all of the ones on the mountain that's where the (laughs) big mansions are that's where the fancy housing are i live at the very foot of the mountain so i live between train tracks and an industrial park and the acme chemical plant that's where i live (laughs) and i'm happy with it as you can imagine, Daly lives at the very peak of the mountain in the fanciest of the fancy neighborhoods. And, <laughs> and I don't think it would be a podcast without a little bit of ribbing. So oftentimes, legitimately though, you will get snow up there yep. that I never see. That's like true. that's how different the elevation is. So for me, if it's minus eight down here, it is legitimately minus three or four. Or if it's just freezing here where I am, it could be minus three or minus four. And oftentimes I will see cars driving around our community that are covered in snow. And I'm like, they must live up by daily because you my get neighbors. snow. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Way more than we would. So I'm glad to hear your Christmas was great. I'm incredibly relieved that you have your heat back because I know that's an incredibly painful process to be in when you've got your family home from school over the holidays. Yeah, it, it was a real drag the last couple of days. But, uh, you know, the, the, the guy from the, 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 the heating company came in fiddled around with it for for a little while, hooked up a bunch of things, read a bunch of numbers, took out a bunch of things, put a whole bunch of new things in, took a bunch of money out of my wallet, and he left with a big smile on my face. (laughs) My heat turned on, I had a big smile on my face, and the family had a big smile on their faces, so that's why I'm sitting down here, and I still have a smile on my face because everybody currently is uh, happy. But uh, another thing that put a big smile on my face was the uh, the interview that you sat down and did with Matt Clark uh, last week. And sadly, I wasn't able to take part in it because uh, I was away, but I'm uh, really excited to share this uh, w- with the community and for everybody to get to, to know him. And, and, and like you, I'm going to be rooting for him uh, next year. And I just, I want to tee this one up a little bit too, because I'd never met Mac before we did this interview and uh, a friend of the show had spoken to him during CODA and indicated to us that, look, this is, this is a really great kid with a ton of upside and he's Canadian. And this friend of the show had actually had the opportunity to watch him race live at CODA because Mm -hmm. part of the F4 US championship powered by Honda actually took place or concluded over the CODA race weekend. And I had reached out directly to him because I wasn't able to figure out who his management team was. And I said, Hey, look, I would love, we would love to have you on the podcast. Uh, 
who can we speak to about making that happen? And he was great. And he helped us coordinate that. And we got to put in a podcast. And he was also gracious enough to record with us just days before Christmas. So we recorded this episode last week. So it's very, very fresh. If you don't know, Matt Clark is one of the up and coming superstars of open wheel racing in North America. He races in the F4 US championship powered by Honda. He finished second in the championship last year. The title decision, the title decider came all the way down to the final race weekend of the year at Coda. He came up ever so short, but he won a slew of races over the course of the championship. He is a full-time high school student. And one of the things that I found really remarkable in the short amount of time I was able to spend with him was he is incredibly articulate. For somebody his age, it feels like his media awareness, his ability to articulate sentences, his cadence, his his ability to talk about complex subjects is incredibly strong, and it was a delight speaking to him. But he is absolutely an up-and-coming star in North American open-wheel racing. He aspires to be successful and make it to IndyCar, and I think that's something that we should all be very, very aware of. And I think next year, as we pick up steam and we get into the championships once again, I think we'll pay very close attention to Mac because not only is he extraordinarily talented and one of the most talented young drivers in all of North America. So we talk about the U.S. championship really being the bastion of where Canadian drivers go and U.S. drivers go and increasingly talented drivers from South and Central America. Uh, But he's got a particular, I would say, talent in terms of just being able to express himself and engage with people in a very human way. And I came away from that that session, that interview, really starstruck and really wanting to connect with him and spend more time talking to him. So mm. he's also kindly committed to uh, allowing us to spend a little bit more time with him next spring, next summer, as the championship uh, launches next year as well. So incredibly talented kid, full-time high school student based out of Southern Ontario. Uh, He was very open with us and it was a fun time. So I can't thank him and his team enough for making this happen. It was something that we hope to follow up on soon, but it's also good for us because I think you and I spend a lot of time talking about open wheel racing at the highest levels, a little bit of Indy, a lot of Formula One, but I think it's really useful for us to get a better understanding of what life is like for these drivers in Formula Four and Formula Three, because we talk so much about the grandeur and the riches of being part of Formula One, but all of those drivers came from somewhere and that's always Formula Two, it's Formula Three, it's Formula Four. And I think sometimes we're a little bit disconnected and detached. And I think it's worth understanding and appreciating how challenging it can be for these kids because they're that. They're 14, 15, 16, or 17-year-old kids that are trying to juggle you know, adolescence and going through big change in their lives and having to juggle full-time high school and social life, but also being a full-time driver and having to fly away for training and racing and contend with the pressures of being on a national stage. So Mac was awesome. I look forward to sharing this and we promise to give you a lot of updates throughout the 2022 campaign, wherever he's racing. That's awesome. And without further ado, we're going to just uh, transition quickly. We're going to have, uh, well, Mac is on deck, so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back on the other side, Mark's interview with Mac Clark. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. 
Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for your patience. This is an interview we have now been teasing for the better part of two months, three months. It's been a while. I'm very, very happy that we're able to deliver this. This is something that... uh, We're very excited about, partly because this young driver is a Canadian driver, partly because he's one of the top prospects in all of North America in terms of capability and development prospects and his pathway to a professional career of open wheel racing. But all of that aside, you know who it is. It is Matt Clark. We're incredibly excited to have you on. My friend, how the heck are you doing? Thank you, Mark. I'm doing good. I appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast tonight, and I'm really looking forward to uh, to what it brings. We're going to kick this off. So we did a little bit of a preamble. So we've given our listeners a little bit of context about your background, where you've come from, some of your top qualifications. But I think what we'd love to know from you is, you know, if you're meeting somebody for the first time, you're meeting our audience, what should they know about you? How would you like to introduce yourself? And what are some really cool things that you think people would be interested in learning? Yeah, for sure. So uh, like you said, my name is Matt Clark, uh, 17 years old. I'm born and raised in Canada. So born in Toronto. I live, you know, 45 minutes it's outside the GTA. So repping that Canadian flag hard. <laughs> um, I've been racing since I was 10 years old and my dream is to become a professional race car driver. Maybe go back to that because I think this is one of those things that people are often interested in is that how do people get into karting or how do you get your kids into karting? And we hear these stories about, well, this Formula One driver started when they were three, this Formula One driver started when they're four. You've got to get them in before they can even start talking. Maybe talk about your experience a little bit. What drew you to the circuit originally? And maybe Maybe talk about your first experience and how it grew from there. So when I was like eight or nine years old, because I wasn't all that interested in racing when I was younger, like I started fairly late for someone who, you know, wanted to go all the way. So when I was eight or nine years old, I kind of started watching, you know, Formula One on, on Sundays with my dad and, and growing up in the household, my dad actually used to be like a, a top level professional go-karter. And most people don't even realize that that exists. Uh, Go-karting in Europe and and even across North America is extremely competitive. So when I was 10 or 11, uh, after asking my dad multiple times, you know, dad, like dad, 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 I really want to try go-karting. He eventually, you know, let me, let me have a go. And I did it for 
for the first time and, and just immediately fell in love with it. Where was it that you went for the first time? Where, where did you get your first taste of competitive go-karting? When was it that you had to go back to your parents and say, hey, I don't think this is just a hobby anymore. I think this is something I want to do long-term. So the first time I ever, I remember it was like, like it was yesterday because I mean, I fell in love with it right from the start. Um, it was some like run down indoor go-kart track somewhere in Hamilton. Uh, and that's kind of when I got like my first initial taste, like the first time I actually drove anything. But then about two years later after you know a few seasons of club racing i remember we were driving on the way home from the from the circuit and i turned to my dad and looked at him i said dad like i want to make a career of this like i want to start getting more competitive oh man i have to know your your dad's reaction was was he more open to it was it something that you had to sell your mom on pretty hard because obviously committing is is pretty expensive it's time consuming it's costly were your parents open to it or did you have to sell them a little bit it's funny. I almost had to sell my dad more than I had to sell my mom at the start because rightfully so, my dad wanted to make sure that I wasn't getting into it for the wrong reasons, that I wasn't getting into it just because dad was doing it, because I wanted to do it. Um, so that was definitely the initial sell when we first started. But you know, even up to this day, every six months, my parents would just be like, you know, are you sure you really want to do this? Like no pressure, you know, you don't have to continue on this path, but we've been all in as a, as a family unit ever since, you know, around my, uh, my 12th birthday. I think that's something that seems to be pretty synonymous with this sport is it's not an individual investment so much as it is a family, a family investment that everyone's invested, everyone's contributing to it in those early days. And, and I'm, I'm leaning into some of the questions that we got from our, our listeners here. When you first started, did it require buying a cart? Did you build your own cart? Especially in the early days when you're 10, 11, 12, what did the logistics look like of getting a car onto the track every single weekend? Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to where I kind of came from a racing family. Even though I wasn't interested when I was younger, I had a lot of people around me who knew bits and pieces about the motorsport world. And I was fortunate enough to find a, a really good deal on a used cart. It was, I think it was two grand for the cart, a whole bunch of tires, three engines, and like all the stuff you needed to go racing. So I went half and half with my dad. I put, you know, a thousand bucks in from, you know, whenever I had when I was 12 years old, just like birthday money savings and, and stuff like that. And we went half and half and we bought my first go-kart. And how long did that cart last you? At what point? And to be honest, I'm asking some of these questions purely out of selfish motive because I have a four-year-old that's getting more and more interested <laughs> in, in motorsports and racing. So a lot of these are very selfish questions, but how long did you drive that car before cart before you felt I need to step into something a little bit bigger or is that more of an evolutionary process where you consistently just upgrade the chassis that you have? First off, you're in big trouble if you have a four-year-old who's already interested <laughs> in racing. Uh, but that car lasted me about two years until I really decided I, I wanted to be competitive. Oh, wow. Um, just because, you know, the nature of the circuit that I was driving at, it wasn't particularly rough on the chassis. You know, there's there's various tracks around North America where, you know, you can bend a chassis in, in a day, but... Uh, the uh, the the circuit that I started at it was it was pretty mild so you know two years and it it certainly wasn't you know the the best equipment but it was great for what we were doing at the time and uh, when I when I really started to get competitive you know that's when I I built my first chassis with my dad uh, in early 2016 and, and that was like 
you know, the best moment I'd ever had in my entire life. It was because it was my Christmas present. Uh, so, you know, like post Christmas, like January, something my dad and I built my first ever go-kart. You talked a couple of minutes ago about that inflection point where you realized that maybe this is something you wanted to take to another level of competitiveness. And in terms of personal and physical and, and emotional in investment, at what point did you start looking at trainers or more professional coaching? Because I have to assume that early on, maybe there was a little bit of support at the track, but it was probably a lot of you and, and your family, as you mentioned. At what point did you start looking for external support and trainers and coaching? It was more, you know, like you said, kind of that turn turning moment in my career where I, you know, decided I want to be competitive. Uh, initially, it was just always my father and I. And, you know, that was in a, a great base already because... I was fortunate enough that my dad already knew a lot about racing and him himself, he was a very successful driver. Uh, so once we kind of moved past that stage, um, I joined, you know, the proper national karting team that my dad actually used to compete with. And Robert Rickens is a Canadian IndyCar driver who unfortunately had that, that horrific accident a few years back. But his older brother, Trevor Wickens, who, who got him to a very high point in his career as his manager, he actually runs uh, the most successful karting team in Canada. So I raced with Trevor under uh at the time was marinello north america and he gave me you know a lot of advice and and kind of pushed us in the right direction as my super competitive karting career started and and this is a question that i'm really curious to to learn when you started making that transition was there any aspect of the racing that you found particularly challenging was it something about taking a corner at a certain speed? Was it rotating the back end? Was it hitting breaking points? What were some of the things that you really struggled with as you made that transition into becoming hyper-competitive? And, and how did you overcome those things? And what was the sense of relief and satisfaction when you started to develop those skills within your racecraft? I think the toughest thing for me is because I was pushed up um, really fast and really aggressively because I had to catch up with what a lot of the kids, the other kids were already doing. So my whole timeline from like club racing to regional racing to national racing to international racing was it all, it all happened very quick. Um, and I'd say the thing I struggled the most with, uh, especially in karting was my race craft. So karting is like hyper aggressive. Um, you know, you're, you got a whole bunch of, of kids filled with testosterone going 120, 130 kilometers an hour in these little go-karts with plastic bumpers. So stuff can get intense pretty quick. And, you know, learning the subtleties of flicking the car under braking to block the inside or, uh, knowing when to push someone up the, up the road to catch the next pack. Like that, that was, those were all little subtleties that I, I had to learn myself in a very short amount of time. And eventually once I got to kind of the end of my karting career, I could really start to see, you know, all that time that I put in to say like watching the seniors race. So like the class above me, you know, when I wasn't on track, I'd go watch them because I'd want to know exactly what the best guys in, th in that class were doing and try to apply it to my racing. And I could start to see that pay off. A question that, that leans into this a little bit, and it's something that actually surfaced with the Michael Schumacher documentary that came out on Netflix a couple of months ago. But I think one of the revelations from that was, again, in that case, it was really a, a family effort to get Ralph and to get Michael through the carding process, and it was expensive. But they made a comment in this documentary, and this was somebody that actually messaged me just moments ago asking me to ask you this question. But one of the revelations was, hey, they used to go and scrounge for used carding tire tires out of the bin because it was so expensive. Talk a little bit about the experience of tires and karting. So you've made that transition. You're you're competing at a more competitive level. How long do the tires last? Are there 
there different types of tires for different types of conditions? What is the cost of a tire? Talk a little bit just about the tire piece because I think that's something that a lot of our listeners who are new to open wheel racing find really fascinating. Yeah, tires are one of the craziest things about racing in the aspect that, you know, your road tires on like your your mom's minivan will last you like two, three, four years, right? <laughs> but racing tires, especially at the karting level, will last you like a quarter day, a half day at best, you know, if you're really competitive. So they're slick tires. They have no tread um, in dry conditions. And the tire is only, you know, ultra fast for the first, you know, 10 laps. Uh, and you have to hit that tire window. You have to make sure you're perfect during those 10 laps because that's all you got. That's all you got in qualifying. You only got 10 laps. And that's a conservative number. So tires are, are crazy and they're everything, right? They connect the car to the ground. And, and you mentioned that, that Michael Schumacher story. Um, when I first started international karting, I remember going and, and searching the tire bins and like, oh, like, you know, these rich kids, they only have like two sessions on their tires and they're throwing them out and I'd go grab them and, and put them on my car for the next session. So small things like that where you can kind of make those connections. It's, uh, it, it feels nice. Are there at this level, and maybe this is something that, becomes more prevalent as you advance in your motorsports career. But even at the karting level, are there different compounds uh, of tires for different conditions, different sur track surfaces, or is it more just a conventional, hey, it's a one-off slick, it's a similar compound, and everyone runs the same compound? So wet and dry tires are different. So in the dry, they're full slicks like you see on TV in Formula One, IndyCar, and NASCAR, you know, various forms of, of racing. Um, but in the wet, there's uh, a different tire, so it's treaded, it displaces the water better. Uh, but usually for each series, there is only two tires allocated, one slick, one wet. Um, and then that can change, you know, from series to series. So different tire manufacturers will, will have their place in, in different series. And then the compound may vary uh, based on that as well. So, you know, you could be racing one series one week and the tire could be a little bit harder. And then you could be racing one the next week and the tire could be a little bit softer. So, you know, that has to do a lot with the setup of your go-kart and, and the driver feel and, and how you manipulate the kart as well. If you're racing, and again, this is another question that somebody poised to us, but they made the point that, hey, you know what, in, in a lot of the junior formula in, in karting, tire blankets are often outlawed. So it's all about the young drivers getting heat into those tires, because if you want to get that, that cornering ability, if you want to get that braking ability into that tire, you've got to create that heat yourself. How would you do that? So let's say it's not a 35 degree Celsius day. So speaking Canadian language here, let's say it's a cooler <laughs> day, the sun's away. How would you get heat into those tires to make sure that you get the most out of those tires? And as you said, those 10 laps that you've got. And and that's super crucial, like especially on race starts, or even if you're only going to have one or two or three quality laps. Um, you know, racing in Canada, I kind of have a, and growing up, I kind of had a natural advantage over some of the American kids or <laughs> some of the kids from South America because they're used to really warm conditions, right? So, you know, when it kind of drops below like that, again, speaking Canadian terms like that, like 15 degrees Celsius, uh, bar, like I almost get excited. Um, because, you know, living up here in the cold, I know how to fire my tires up, whether that's, you know, weaving the car back and forth. You use a lot of a lot of throttle and brake to kind of manipulate the car and, and, and how you want to warm the tire. So you want to put as much load on them as possible um, without slipping them and taking any of that precious life away. Looking back, and we're going to get into your F1600 and your F4 US Championship powered by Honda career because there's some really exciting stuff there. But reflecting back on those early years and that transition into hyper-competitive karting, what is your what is your best memory? What is your favorite memory? When you look back on that time, what is the thing that that you that you still get goosebumps thinking about? 
Uh, I remember the day that I won a race in the Scusa Winter Series. So the Scusa Winter Series is, you know, the most competitive karting championship in North America. And it was my first big, and I think to this date, my only like big international karting win because my, my karting career was really short and I, I just couldn't believe it. Like I walked around for, for the week after, like refusing to believe that it was real. And I still, to this day, I can't believe that ever happened, but uh, it was such like, it was almost like a weight off my shoulders. Like you could see, you know, the years, the, the four years of, of hard work that I put in prior, like finally paid off. That's, that's the one day that I'll always remember. So talk then a little bit about the transition. So there's a point where you make that commitment that I want to do karting more competitively, but there's a point where you almost have to start transitioning out of karting. To your point, you can do it professionally. A lot of people do, but for somebody like you that has bigger aspirations and you want to get into an open wheel racing car, what did that transition look like? You talked to your family, you talked to your parents, you talked to all the people that are supporting you in this journey. What did that transition look like when you started moving away from karting and you started to getting into actual racing cars and open wheel racing cars? The transition was definitely fast, like faster than I would have expected it to have been. I got in a race car for the first time when I was 15. So I didn't even have my, my road license yet, right? And that's what people thought was crazy. So I stopped karting in like mid 2019 and I've, and I've gone back and done a few races since, cause it's always great to stay sharp in a go-kart cause it's, it's the most physical thing you'll ever do as a driver. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that it's great to stay in shape, but I pretty much stopped karting like altogether and completely focused on cars after starting my first season. And even still like without switching back and forth, I battled a lot of my old karting habits while I was still, you know, getting my feet wet in cars. We had asked Nicholas Latifi on the podcast a couple of years ago that, Hey, when you were making that transition from F2 and F1, and he did a lot of testing, we had asked him, what was the biggest physical change in the car when you went from F2 to F1. And I'm going to pose that same question to you when we get back from the break. But what was the biggest change that you found? Was it acceleration? Was it mechanical suspension? Was it the braking? So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So before we jump to a break, I had posed the question to you, which was, what was the biggest change? And obviously there's a physical change. It's bigger, it's it's heavier. You're talking about aerodynamics, but talk about some of the things that you found to be most startling about that transition, both in a good way and maybe in a scary way. So for sure, it's definitely intimidating as a 15 year old kid, you know, be going from driving this, this little go-kart that's like 300 pounds that, that you have a ton of control over to driving this big, like, heavy in relative terms, uh, car, you know, that's doing like double the speed. Uh, I'd say definitely the weight being one and like 
real active suspension being two because in a go-kart there's none uh and you know that that's a big fundamental change you almost have to take everything you you knew for the last four or five years and throw it at the window so so learning how to deal with the suspension and control the weight better in in my car uh it it really took my first rookie season to to shake it all out um and and understand the concept of of driving a big heavy race car and what was that first season? What was the car you were driving that first year you migrated away from, from karting? It was Formula 1600. So I raced Formula 1600 in 2019 with Brian Graham Racing. And we ended up rookie of the year. But a lot of that year was just you know spent learning how to drive a race car. You competed in F1600 in Canada for two years, I believe. And maybe speak to your sophomore year because your sophomore year, for anyone that doesn't know was an incredible campaign for you. You you dominated, you became not only the champion, but the youngest champion on record, beating out a record that had been held since 1985 by the illustrious Paul Tracy. And I think for anyone listening that is a fan of open wheel racing in, in Indy, Paul Tracy was a long time Canadian superstar in the sport, both on the champ car side and, and briefly on the IRL side. He's done a lot of work with the broadcasters, including NBC, but you actually broke his record. Maybe talk a little bit about that twen- that that sophomore campaign when you stormed in and you racked up the wins. What changed from that, that rookie campaign to that sophomore campaign? What did you learn that was transferable that was able to help you rack up all those victories in that championship? It was definitely a big change in me and the driver. And then I also had the small environment change. Um, I raced with Britain West Motorsports in 2020. So I actually uh, switched teams for my uh, my 2020 campaign. And I, I came into the year a lot stronger, both physically, mentally. And I just, you know, I wasn't fresh. I, I had muscle memory of the car. I knew the tracks. I, 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 knew, I knew what I was in for this time. Uh, and, and, and it helped a lot. Uh, I really was comfortable with manipulating that car, whether it be, you know, with my throttle or brake inputs and, or, uh, or the steering wheel. And my feedback was better. My, my race craft was better. My race starts were better. Everything about me a year ago was better going in. Uh, and I still learned a ton throughout the year. So, you know, really, really thankful for that 2020 season. And uh, those Britain West guys were amazing that year. Talk a little bit about, because I think sometimes folks that are new to motorsports probably underestimate the the quality of the fitness regimen that racers have to undergo. I think we see these drivers, they're often lean, we assume they've got great cardio, but I think most of us probably underestimate the amount of work that drivers have to put in to being fit enough to pilot any of these cars. And I'm not even talking about a Formula One car. As you mentioned, a cart without an active suspension is incredible incredibly physical on the body and the neck and the muscles. Talk a little bit about your your exercise regime and how that's evolved from cart into F16 and then into where we are now, which we'll get to in a couple of minutes. Yeah, for sure. And and like you said, karting, I think is like, the best way to uh to you know let someone kind of figure out how hard it really is like you know grown adults struggle to do five laps in a, in a shifter cart you know let alone like a half an hour final and 35 degrees celsius weather like chasing someone down for the win so like my physical regimen i try to work out you know four to five days a week uh you know hour sessions um and it's it's mostly cardio based as of right now but i do have some you know body weight stuff in there to try to keep my muscle mass up uh i have to be better at that that's one of the things that i'm kind of a little bit bad at um but it's definitely important and i think the way i explain it to a lot of people is 
you don't have to be the strongest human on the planet to drive a race car. Like it's, you know, you see those like offensive linemen in football and, and those guys are massive. Like you look at them, you're like, I'm not messing with that guy. But in racing, you need to be strong enough that your physical performance never hurts your mental performance, if that makes sense. Like you're never limited by your physical performance because you need to be 100% focused on what's going on track and not like, oh, my neck's tired. Oh, my arms are starting to get tired. Oh, my left leg is really getting sore from from pushing on the brake pedal. Uh, small things like that. And I feel like, you know, being 100% at your physical peak is is definitely important for being a, a champion in, in motorsports. 2019, 2020, you've made the F16 transition. Of course, There's the added complexity that we're all continuing to live through of a pandemic, but 2021, you make the transition now into Formula 4, the Formula 4 US Championship powered by Honda. You are now on the radar in terms of uh, being a legitimate professional prospect. Talk about that transition, the team, how that transition was made, what those conversations look like, how you were uh, scouted, recruited. Maybe talk a little bit about the transition because we've got some great F4 questions for you, but maybe talk a little bit about how you made that transition from, you said, karting into F16, and now you're talking about going into the lower formulas. So after my 2020 campaign, um, massively successful, won like, you know, I think it was 16 out of 18 races in Canada uh, with the championship. We didn't really know what to do because like you said, the world was still like we were in a global pandemic and all of our plans for uh, for 2021 were up in the air. So, you know, looking back at it, we were kind of just searching around for our options and, and really weighing like, you know, what we should go after. And I ended up heading down to uh, Florida, Sebring, to test a Formula 4 car for the first time uh, with a gentleman by the name of Ernie Canella, very successful engineer in, in the road to Indy and, and a lot of the junior formulas as well as professional level racing in the US. Uh, and he's kind of semi-retired. He bought two F4 cars. We did one test day. It went very well, uh, immediately on pace. I jumped in the car. I, I felt very comfortable. And uh, we, we continued with that program. We did a few more test days and, you know, we decided that we thought that was the best path for 2021. Now you're in a Formula 4 car and you're starting to compete on some pretty well-known tracks in Atlanta, Road of America, Mid-Ohio, uh, Virginia International Speedway, and of course, Circuit of the Americas. So now you're not only racing with a significantly beefed up chassis and powertrain and transmission and more advanced aero and suspension, but now you're starting to race on some of these tracks that you would have seen some of your heroes racing on growing up. Talk about the transition getting into a Formula 4 car, both in terms of the the differences, but also the physical demands that this car may have had on you. Yeah, the, the Formula 4 car was definitely a big step up. Like you said, you have those those big slick tires, those that proper aero, and, and everything kind of goes up a notch. Uh, you know, the competition, the car, and the physical element as well. That car is actually, you know, I've driven like quite a few different race cars, and I'd say that car is physically um, you know, near the top for how hard it is to drive. Uh, the steering is very heavy. And, you know, when you're doing a half an hour long race to stay focused for that long, well, while making sure you're still, you know, always at your 100% peak performance, it's tough. Uh, so I had to, you know, kind of get myself in, in check and, and get on that workout program hard to, to make sure that, you know, I was uh, at the top of my game. Tell the listeners something that maybe they would be surprised or wouldn't know or expect about a Formula 4 car. I think the fact that we race with almost street legal engines. Uh, so 
HBD, Honda Performance Development in North America, do an amazing job with the USF4 program. And we actually use uh, the engine straight out of a Honda Civic Type R. Uh, they take the turbo off and they add a dry sump and that's it. That's it. You drop in the race car and away you go. So that, that that's pretty interesting for me. You know, you see a Honda Type R going down the road and it's like, oh, same engine as in my race car. That's such a cool story. And I think just to give our, our listeners a, a, a sense of what that means, right? I think we think, well, a Honda Civic Type R, that's a pretty cool car to see driving around, especially when matted to that six-speed manual transmission. But is that a race car type of car? But I think what you have to remember here is that's a 3,200-pound street car with all the safety requirements with airbags and four seats and air conditioning. You strip away all that weight and you stick that same really revy variable valve timing engine into a smaller more compact race car it becomes a total beast 100 percent. i mean you're taking it like like you said 32 3 to 300 pound car to like now we're talking 1400 pounds of carbon fiber and you know uh semi-professional level driver so it uh it, it goes pretty quick in the in the race car i was definitely happy with it the first time i uh i took it out for a spin from your perspective, how do you balance one training? So we're talking about training on the track. We're talking about training with the sim. We're talking about training with video replay. We're talking about high school and travel. How do you balance all of those things? Because, you know, I, I was thinking about this earlier today. You've accomplished more by 17 than I think most of us will in, in a lifetime, but you also have more responsibilities than most folks that maybe have a mortgage and have a family just because you've got so many different pieces. How do you balance all of that today? I always joke with people like it's it's hard to maintain a social life with, <laughs> with everything I got going on. And I have a good group of friends and, and I'm happy with it uh, and, I'm, and I'm doing what I love but I'd say the key is definitely time management and my dad's helped me with that a lot because he's a successful businessman and entrepreneur so he's he's drilled that into me from a young age so just just making sure you get everything you can done in a day whether that be you know I usually spend an hour hour and a half on the sim every day whether it be you know on a track I'm going to in a month or, or just just messing around to to get more feel for it and then I have school on top of that as as well as my workout program so and, and that's when I'm not away right that's when I'm at home so you miss like a week of school and then all of a sudden you're behind you have to catch up but I'd say time time management is definitely the big key there. Is there anything while you've gone down this journey and you've been traveling and you've been committed to your, your goals and your ambitions of becoming a professional race car driver, is there anything that you reflect on and think, you know what, if I wasn't doing that, maybe I would have experienced this. Is there anything that you feel that you've missed out on? Or do you feel that, Hey, I've done a pretty good job of balancing everything, all things considered. I remember like the, you know, when you, I don't know if you, you, you may or may not remember, but uh, and it may have been different for you, but like the f the first like week you're in high school, you know, you go to a whole bunch of like intro assemblies and the main thing they say is like, make sure you stay involved. Like you have to be involved in high school because that's how you have the most fun. And like, I definitely haven't been involved, but do I regret it one bit? No, because I'm doing what I love. Like, you know, I'll have those occasional thoughts like, oh, I should be at this party or I should be at this sporting event or what if I played on the football team? But then I have, you know, a second think about it. And I'm like, no way. Like, I'm doing what I love. I'm living my dream. Like, I'm working towards this. So, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the line, I can be a professional race car driver. So short answer, uh, I'd say no regrets. I think a lot of us look back on our high school years with regret. I should have tried out for the basketball team. I should have done this program. But I think in your case, that won't be the thing 
that won't exist, that, that you are doing what you're passionate about and there certainly won't be any regrets. Now, you touched on something a couple of seconds ago that I definitely want to get into because it's something that our listeners are absolutely fascinated by, and that is the concept of a SIM. I'm assuming that you either travel with a SIM, you pack it up and take it with you, or you have one at home. What does your SIM look like today? How much time do you put into it? And how much do you believe it benefits your performance on the track? It's it's next level. It's like a next level tool as a racing driver. And it's something that I really didn't get into until COVID hit. And I think a lot of drivers, like that's when everyone, like everyone's eyes went wide open and went, <laughs> I have so much time. I need to get a simulator. Uh, and my sim today at home, like it's all, I'm, I'm sitting I love in it right it. I now because it. it's where I do like my streaming and, and anything, any of my recording. Um, but it's like all like aluminum bars and, you know, I have a, a belt driven wheel and I, and I sit in a racing bucket seat with, you know, proper, proper pedals, like load cell pedals. And the technology is very advanced. Um, and in terms of like how much it helps me as a driver, it's undefeated. Um, iRacing is the program that, that most professional, you know, semi-professional racers use. And all the tracks are laser scanned. So say I'm going to Road America for a race in a month. If I'm testing on the sim and I, and I hit a bump in turn one on the sim, that same bump is going to be there when I'm doing a flying lap a month from now. Uh, it, it, so it's, it's hyper-realistic and it's, it's really unmatched. We, we got to talk a little bit about the F4 championship because I'm looking at the clock and I realized we're already long past the amount of time we'd promised to keep you. <laughs> F4, you enter F4 this year. We're transitioning out of the pandemic. It's your first year in F4. New power unit, new transmission, completely different arrow. Everything's different. You finish second in the F4 championship in your first year. Again, so this is the F4 US championship powered by Honda. Your first campaign, you finish second. A phenomenal result. And for all of our listeners at home, this is not just where the best young up-and-coming talent in Canada and the US pour into, but increasingly, it's where the best talent from Central and South America go to as well. How do you feel looking back on this campaign? Did you obviously a championship would have been great, but given the fact that it was your first year in this championship, you must feel pretty good about this result. Definitely. And uh, the last weekend we shared with uh, Formula One at, at Coda in Texas, that was incredible. Um, and I ended up losing the championship that weekend. It was a really close fight and, and ultimately it didn't go my way, but you know, I remember talking to my, my family, my friends, my supporters after and say, listen, like, I feel like I fought like a champion this year and I learned so much and we came so close with a, a like me as a rookie driver. And, and I was also with a brand new team as well. So none of us were established going into this campaign and we came out, you know, looking like the top dog or one of the top dogs. So uh, I'm definitely very proud of it. I learned so much with Ernie and the guys. They provide me with a great you know, super fast race car all year long. And I, I will all carry this year, 2021 with me for the rest of my life. Coda was well-documented this year for having record-breaking excitement and attendance. How was the energy that weekend at that track? Just knowing that the Formula One circus was there, that there was hundreds of thousands of people at the track, that must have been a really special experience for you and the the other drivers in your series. It was uh, it was strange trying to balance it all. Like I was like, one half of me was like, oh, I'm such a fanboy this weekend. And then the other half was like, <laughs> wait, I, I'm fighting for a championship. So it was like work and play and work and play work and play um but i definitely i definitely enjoyed myself in the atmosphere you know on the in labs on the out labs like looking into the crowd like oh my gosh i can't believe there's tens of thousands of people watching me race like this is crazy oh my uh, goodness. so the, the whole weekend was just such a privilege 
We're going to do a couple of rapid fire questions, and then we're going to wrap this up. Before we do, of course, I want to give you the opportunity to shout out anybody that supported you along the way, let people know how you can be found on social media. A couple of questions here. First one, what is your favorite music artist to get pumped up to before a big race or a practice session? Uh, I'd say definitely. I'm a big fan. I like new rap. So like Little Tekka, Juice World, Travis Scott, and then of course, because I'm Canadian, I'm from Toronto, Drake. I stay Drake. Okay, right answer. 100% the right answer. So this was a test and you passed the yes. test. <laughs> Next question. What was the last movie you saw? Uh, I was watching Deck the Halls with my girlfriend earlier today. So that would be uh, Deck the Halls. That, that's my answer. Very cool. Favorite current F1 driver and team. And and again, this one might be a little bit more sensitive because you've got a lot of connections in that world. But do you have a particular indie team or driver that you cheered for throughout the 2021 campaign? James Hinchcliffe, 100% all the way in IndyCar. James is such an awesome guy. I mean, he reps he reps awesome. Toronto and he's actually part of my uh, my management group. So James and Andretti all the way in IndyCar and in Formula One, I'd have to go with my boy Danny Rick. I love Danny Ricardo and I love his attitude as well. What does it mean to you to represent Canada? Because it's not something that you shy away from. If you Google your name, it's just countless photos of you with the Canadian flag, the maple leaf waving behind you. What does it mean for you to represent uh, represent the maple leaf in Canada? It's so special, like you know, going up on those those big stages, like especially the the USF Four Championship powered by Honda this year. You know, there wasn't very many Canadian drivers. It was largely American, and then also you know uh, some competitors from Central and South America. So making sure that everyone knows that, that Canada's near the top of the leaderboard that that feels good for me, and representing you know everyone back home, all my supporters and my friends, my family. You've got a couple of minutes of downtime. You're you're not obligated to do an interview, or you don't have media commitments. What social media platform do you do you enjoy a little bit of entertainment with? I'd say Instagram, but then I'm also gonna lean towards uh, probably like the more modern like teenage answer, as in like TikTok. So like I, I'll get lost on TikTok for so long, like 20, 20 minutes half an hour i look at the clock i'm like oh my god i'm so unproductive what's your favorite thing to do with your friends back home during the off season and although i, th- I say off season as if it's probably something that extends for months when it's probably about <laughs> 20 minutes but what's your favorite thing to yeah. do when you've got some time with your friends definitely skiing uh, and as of late uh, we like my friend group are in a massive football phase so like you know watching thursday night monday night sunday night football that's awesome our american listeners are going to love that that was your answer to that <laughs> Best track you've driven on, and you've driven on many, but what's the, what's the best track, your favorite track to drive and why? Karting, Homestead Miami Speedway. It's so physical. The curbs are like half a foot tall, and that's the track I was talking about before where you can bend a chassis in a day. Love that circuit. My favorite. That's my first big international win came. Cars, uh, right here in the six, Motorsport, Canadian Tire Motorsport Park. Super fast, high-speed track. Love it. Your favorite team sport, your favorite team, and your favorite athlete that doesn't compete in the world of motorsports. So we're talking NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA. I'm like slightly conflicted between like the NHL and the NFL, but for the sake of like what I've been doing recently, I'll go NFL, I'll go <laughs> Buffalo Bills, and I'll go either Josh Allen, their star quarterback, or Stephon Diggs, their star wide receiver. I love football. I've gotten into it, and it, it's really technical like racing, so that's kind of how I fell in love with it. That is such a great answer for somebody from Southern Ontario to lead into the <laughs> Buffalo Bills. And for those of you that in the U.S., uh, Southern Ontario, so we're talking about the region with St. Catharines and Hamilton and, and the greater Toronto area, the closest NFL team is in Buffalo. So again, the right answer. My friend, 
I cannot thank you enough for joining us today. Hopefully we can do this again soon. I know you have an entire winter of studying and prep and sim time, but before we let you go, if you want to give anybody a shout out, how can people find you on social media? I'd love if people can connect with you. Please, floor is yours. Thank you. No, uh, so I'm basically underscore Matt Clark on Instagram as well as Twitter. That I have my page Matt Clark Racing on Facebook. Very thankful for all the support this year in 21, as well as you guys for having me on the podcast because this was a blast. Uh, and like you said, I hope to be back on it soon. So thank you. My friend, thank you so, so much. To everybody listening, we are going to rejoin you after the break. Thank you very much. Okay, well, welcome back, everybody. So, Mark, now that uh, everybody's had a chance to listen to your interview, what were your uh, your three big uh, takeaways from that conversation? You know, there was a couple. I think the first one was the fact that, again, I, I kind of teased this before we went into the interview, but I think one of the biggest, most startling findings that I had was that for kids like Mac, these are kids that are going to high school full-time. So they're juggling all of the academic responsibilities of anyone their age, but also competing full-time in a national championship. And, and that means significant investment in sim time, in terms of track time, mm -hmm. and in terms of travel. And I think the other big kind of discovery I had during this session, and maybe I'd taken this for granted, but he made a really great point that, look, prior to the pandemic, Drivers might be exposed to a simulator with the race team or at the factory, but when the pandemic hit at the beginning of 2020, and he talks to this, all of a sudden, all of these drivers, regardless of the championship, regardless of whether it's F4, F3, F2, Formula One, or Indy, they all started buying and investing in simulators hmm. at home. So going into the pandemic, it may have been unusual for a driver to own a simulator now it's just standard fare that every driver if i'm serious about being a, a race car driver i'm going to make that personal investment in a simulator for my home because it's going to help me hone my skills when i'm not on the road and in a lot of cases it's a real financial saver as well in the sense that hey rather than pouring all that money out to travel to get to a track and spend tires, money on tires, I'm going to be able to experience and practice that track at home. So that was a big discovery for me too, because I kind of assumed that, hey, all drivers probably have them. But it was interesting to learn that, hey, that wasn't actually the norm until the pandemic. And now it's just become a regular part of training that every driver owns a simulator, they invest in their simulator, and it's a big part of their training regimen. And I think the other one too, and we touched on this is I shared one of the, the most startling findings that you and I had from the Michael Schumacher documentary, mm -hmm. which was, Hey, he and his brother would often scrounge for used karting tires in the bins on race weekend, because there would often be kids that had greater financial, I would say resources available to them. And they would toss the tires after a, a weekend or after a race. And they would go and dig those tires out. And it was interesting that Matt could actually relate to that. And one of the things that he'd mentioned as well, which was unknown to me was, you know, you could spend $200, $300 on really great tires for a race weekend, but really those tires drop off a cliff after 10 laps. <laughs> <laughs> and you talk about a race weekend where maybe you're racing three or four or five times plus practice, you might be spending thousands of dollars on tires every race weekend. So 
I actually went and looked it up because I wanted to get a sense, especially especially as this increasingly distant dream of having a son competing in karting <laughs> is materializing before our ID eyes. But I actually went and looked like, what does it cost to buy tires knowing that maybe they last 10 laps? Maybe they last a race, right? But you really only get 10 really great laps out of them. What do they cost? And you know, karting tires can be 50 to $70 US per corner. So hmm. you're talking two or $300 per set. And that's really going to last you one race. And maybe when you're practicing or training, you know, you can get a couple of days out of those tires. But if you're competing at the highest levels and you want to get the attention of teams and you want to get the attention of sponsors, well, look, you're at a significant disadvantage if you're running old tires and that guy next to you or that girl next to you is running on brand new tires. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a big finding as well. So I think those would probably be three of my my biggest takeaways and things that I spent a lot of time processing and talking about after the show. Well, that's awesome. I, I, it was really awesome to hear that conversation, get to know him a little bit better, and I'm really looking forward to the season ahead and watching his uh, career progress. But Mark, let's, let's take Take a, a quick chance uh, here to look at some of the Formula One news that's kind of been filtering out over the holiday season. It's not all reindeer and eggnog and, and all the you know, <laughs> elves and uh, you know things like that. Uh, Lewis Hamilton's younger brother, Nicholas, provided an update about uh, the seven-time world champion on his Twitch stream uh, earlier this uh, week. Uh, Lewis has been very quiet. Uh, he's basically uh, just, uh, I wouldn't say he's disappeared uh, completely. He's at least disappeared from, from social media. Anyways, uh, Nicholas uh, had to say that, uh, that that his older brother is just taking a bit of a, a break from social media, which I totally don't blame him for. And uh, he went on to say that uh, social media can be a very toxic place, but uh, everything is good with Lewis and uh, everything's uh, a-okay. Yeah, I think this is... It's interesting that we live in a world where an update on somebody's involvement with social media makes makes, <laughs> makes headlines. <the> news. <laughs> but I think in a lot of ways, Lewis has been a master of social media over the past four or five or six or really even 10 years. And I don't mean that in the sense that he, he's manipulating the message and he's kind of changing the narrative, but he uses social media in very positive ways in terms of social justice and, and helping bring... Uh, I would say, attention to different subjects and topics that he's passionate about. And when all of a sudden he's absent from social media, that that void is very, very obvious. And I think right now a lot of us can speculate as to why he stepped away and maybe it's the byproduct of what happened in Abu Dhabi or the byproduct of the fact that there is a lot of venom and toxicity on the platform right now. But the fact that he's not engaging with social media is very, very, very obvious. But at the same time, I think a lot of the people that are listening to this podcast can probably relate to him a little bit mm -hmm. that, you know what, sometimes it's good just to take a break. And sure. I think given where he was and given the outcome of that final race and the pressures that he felt throughout the course of the campaign, maybe it was just healthy for him to disconnect and, you know, be by himself, be with friends, be with those that are close to him, or maybe even lean into some of his other hobbies. And we know he's big into music and fashion. And, and maybe that's what this is, which is, I just wanted a break. And I'll be very honest, social media for us can be a bit of a job. And fortunately, yep. all the followers that we have, and I hate to use the word followers, but all of the community members that surround around our Twitter account are fantastic. But that said, it can be a full-time job just to throw up a couple of updates and make sure that we're engaging properly mm -hmm. and that we're socializing proper messaging and news stories and things like that. And we have 
2,700 people in our community, which I'm very, very thankful for. You know, we've grown by a thousand over the course of the last year. And fortunately, I'm proud to say that I would have a cup of coffee with every single one of the people that, that we engage with on Twitter. But if you step outside of that community, it's an awfully dark and toxic mm-hmm. place. And it was really difficult to be on Twitter for the better part of the last couple of weeks. And I'll be honest, as much as I've been involved with that account, I haven't been engaging with F1 Twitter because it hasn't really been a great place to be over the course of the last couple of weeks. So I think we make a big deal out of this because Lewis has always had such a huge presence on social media. And I think everyone wants to know where he is, where his head is and what he's thinking. And is he going to return to F1 and where are the updates and what's happening with his social causes? But maybe this is just a break. And if it's a break, he deserves it. Hey, if we want a break, I'm sure these guys want a break uh, as well. Now, Formula One, the well, other person in Formula One, here I go again, uh, completely not firing on all cylinders here. (laughs) Anyways, uh, Red Bull team principal Christian Horner says a Hollywood script would not have been beaten that uh, Formula One season roundup finale dealio thing that we had a couple of weeks ago. Anyways, uh, Christian said in an interview with motorsport.com, quote, I think it was 47 years ago that this championship last went to a race where drivers were tied on points. I don't think even a Hollywood scriptwriter could have come up with the ins and outs of this year. And Formula One's popularity, as we have seen, has gone through the roof. F1 president Stefano Domenicali has probably got the biggest sporty event in the world this year as the finale. And the amount of new fans that we've welcomed into the sport has been astounding. Phenomenal. End quote. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, that couldn't have been scripted any better if that was uh, indeed the whole point of the exercise of the 2021 World uh, Championship. But it it was, I mean, right from the very first race, I don't think we could have predicted half the things that we saw unfold on the track throughout the first, well, all of the races, basically. And I don't think anybody saw that that, that finish to the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix at Yas Marina a couple of weeks ago unfold the way that it, it did. I mean, We've been over it in detail on this podcast already, but I think Christian's on point with his his synopsis of what what we saw this year. Yeah, in isolation, I don't think anyone could have asked for a better better conclusion to the championship, which was it was hyper-competitive. The championship went both ways. We saw ups, we saw down, we saw drama, we saw surprise winners. We saw a little bit of everything this year, and I think in isolation, the fact that it came down to not only the last race of the season, but it came down to the last lap is fantastic. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. You, You couldn't have scripted it better, and if somebody did script this and they made a movie out of it, I think both of you and I would have looked at each other and said, hey, that's that doesn't happen at F1. It doesn't come down to the last lap of the last race. Like that that's a little bit Hollywood. That's a little bit glammed up. But unfortunately, of course, when you don't look at it in isolation and you consider the reason it came down to the last lap of the last race, there's obviously a, a little bit of a little bit of tarnish and a little bit of a, a stain. And I think both you and I are still wrestling a little bit with how we feel about this. And yeah. my sense still is I trust ultimately that that Michael Massey was forced given the timeline and given the time crunch as the clock was running out on that that race to make a decision and i don't think he necessarily made a great decision but i think he's a human being and i think he wears far too many hats and there was immense pressure on him and i i trust it was just a a human decision and i and i can i'm starting to be able to live with that i think that said, I trust, but I, I live with this philosophy that, hey, you can trust somebody, you can trust something, but you should still check. I would still love F1 to share the tapes of that 
of those final moments in the steward's room to help us really unpack the decision-making behind that. But I don't believe that there's a grand conspiracy. And while in a sense, the championship was absolutely manufactured because the race call to allow only some of the cars to unlap themselves was unprecedented. Mm -hmm. I don't believe there was a grand conspiracy in place to ensure that that Max Verstappen won the championship. And I would love, I would absolutely love the FIA and Formula One to prove everybody wrong and release those tapes of Massey in those final moments. But he's a human being that wears way too many hats and F1 and the Formula One need to live or invest much more greatly in the officiating and the marshalling of these races. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, just, uh, I, I think that there's no discussion or dispute between the uh, two of us, uh, the, the two of us, that uh, Max is indeed a worthy and deserving champion. World champion. And he yeah. deserves he deserves it. Yeah, and but I mean, it's just unusual circumstances in the way that he got that first chip. Okay, moving along, uh, Ross Braun and Pat Simons are po- supposedly going to be leaving their high-powered, high-profile roles at Formula One at the end of uh, 2022. This is a, a little bit uh, of a surprise. So Braun is the Motorsports Managing Director of Formula One, and uh, Simons, uh, well, they were both uh, <laughs> colleagues at Benetton way back in the day. I mean, Braun has been in Formula One since 1978. I mean, he's pushing 70 now. I mean, uh, so he's uh, obviously looking, perhaps looking ahead to, uh, to retirement or something like that. There's no word yet on uh, whether or not they'll have some sort of consultancy or some sort of some sort of role in Formula One uh, moving uh, forward. I mean, uh, uh, Ross's big innovations and jobs uh, was the, uh, the the sprint qualifying and the whole 2021-2022 cars that are going to debut. And Simon's last big project is this uh, new push towards the power unit uh, that's going to be introduced in 2026. And this is supposedly laying the groundwork for Audi or Volkswagen or whoever from that VW group to to come into Formula One. So both, uh, you know, two guys with a lot of experience in Formula One, a lot of collective knowledge between the two of them will certainly be missed. Uh, But it'll be uh, interesting to see what, uh, you know, how they are involved with Formula One, if at all, moving forward. Yeah, and this is a big blow. And it was something that initially I didn't receive particularly well. I'm a big fan of both, particularly mm-hmm. Ross Braun. And if you're new to Formula One, I, I highly encourage you to spend a couple of minutes Googling Ross Braun and some of his accomplishments in Formula One, especially his run with Ferrari. The fact that he really, really built the present day Mercedes, not to take anything away from Total Wolf, but ultimately at the end of 2008, going into the global recession, Honda bailed on the sport. They don't think they necessarily wanted to, but he stood up. He bought that team that he was running at the time. He turned it into Braun GP, which ultimately was purchased by Mercedes. But it was fantastic. And I, I always love that story that, hey, you've got this factory Honda team in 2008 with a Honda car and a Honda power unit. Honda leaves the sport at the end of that year, sells the team to Ross Braun, but isn't able to commit to giving them engines or isn't willing to give them engines. So Ross Braun goes to Mercedes. They strike a deal to put Mercedes engines in the back of a car that was designed for Honda engines, and then they win the championship. And then they sell the team to Mercedes, and the rest is history. So I think there's some really great stuff there. But that's really just kind of scratching the surface on what Ross Braun's accomplished in Formula One. Now, that said, the more I think about this, I'm strongly now with the mindset that Liberty had leaned into both Ross and and Pat and and ask them ask them to help formula 1 graduate into the current 
into the current world. And I think that this was probably predetermined. I think Formula One tasked both of them with helping evolve F1 and get it to its current state. So we're talking about the cost cap. We're talking about the new formula. We're talking about the new engines. I have a feeling that Formula One had tapped both of them on the shoulder and said, look, you know what? Can you assume these roles for X number of years? We know Mm -hmm. maybe this isn't something you want to do long-term. You don't want to commit to it for 10 years, but we need your help. And as you spoke to, Ross has been a big part of helping to develop the new cars and helping to mix up and change the makeup of the competitive race weekend. And Simmons, on the other hand, has been deeply involved in the power unit. And now that all of this has largely been concluded, I think now is an opportunity for them to exit the sport. But I really feel like Formula One had come along and really tapped them on the shoulder and said, look, can you help us get over these hurdles and set the sport up for the next five to 10 years? I think their work is now done and now they have the opportunity to explore some other things. Now, I wouldn't be surprised, especially in Ross Braun's case, if he finds his way back to a team um, in a consultancy role, as Mm -hmm. you spoke to or alluded to a couple of minutes ago, or maybe even in a directorship role. But I'll be very interested to see where these two chaps go, especially Ross Braun, because wherever he goes, there's success and a lot of it. Yeah, absolutely. This is quite in contrast to this next story, which is uh, some of the comments made by former Formula One driver and Alfa Romeo driver Antonio Giovinazzi, who's uh, walked away from the sport uh, somewhat disillusioned by what he calls the ugliness of Formula One. And uh, he was uh, letting off uh, some steam and venting about uh, the uh, the Italian team's choice to replace him with Guan Yuzhu, the Chinese uh, driver, which uh, Giovinazzi uh, believes came down to money over talent. And uh, that's an opinion that he's, uh, that's the hill he's decided to, to, to die on. And uh, he uh, said in an interview with uh, Corriere della Sera, uh, he said, quote, it was a challenge that was almost lost. That's the bad thing about this sport. Unfortunately, it's always been like that. I'll hope I'll be able to change my mind in the future, uh, end quote. And then he went on to say uh, more about uh, Guan Yu. Uh, he said, quote, lucky him. Even though he got his F1 super license points himself, there are now drivers who defined, decide the financial policies of entire teams, but I'm not the only one to have lost my job because of this, end quote. So... Obviously, he's um, you know quite bitter. The the one part I don't this has just been a, a little bit lost in translation. It says even though he got the F one super license points himself, as he kind of saying he's kind of bought his way through the different formulas to earn those super points to get a Formula One license. But I mean. Yeah, I mean, sponsorship, big sponsorship packages and out-and-out out, uh, pay drivers, I mean, that's always been a part of uh, Formula One. And I feel for Giovinazzi, uh, it's a little bit unusual, though, to see a driver be, you know, quite, you know, quite, you know, outspoken about uh, leaving a team. Yeah, I, I very much agree with you. And that was my takeaway as well, that and maybe he's got very little interest in not being honest and transparent. And I appreciate that actually, but, but I feel like he had some opportunities. He had the opportunity to be a test driver for formula one and to be exposed to that entire enterprise and that operation. And because of his connection to Ferrari, he got a full-time drive with alpha alpha Romeo for a couple of years. So he had a, a real opportunity in F1 that I think a lot of drivers don't get. In the case of Zhu, I actually believe Zhu is a very talented driver, and I think he will perform at at least the level that Antonio Giovinazzi did. But if 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 Giovinazzi really wants to get technical here and argue that, hey, look, I lost my seat because of a quote-unquote paid driver, you could also make the 
argument that there are other non-pay drivers that aren't in Formula One that probably deserve his seat more. And sure. you could look at somebody like Nick DeVries that, hey, if Alpha if Alpha Romeo was given the option of, hey, Giovinazzi or Nick DeVries, you have to believe that Nick DeVries, even if he was bringing no sponsorship and no funding to the team, is probably the smarter move anyways. And I think this also just speaks to the pressures in the industry right now, which is we have 10 teams, 20 seats, and we are absolutely flush with young talent. And people would point last year to the fact that Alex Albon sat out for a year without exactly, a ride. Exactly, right. Ocon sat out for a year without a ride. Mm-hmm. And Ocon's obviously been incredibly successful since his return. And you now argue or could kind of reflect on that period and say, how was he without a seat? But the reality is there aren't a lot of seats. There aren't a lot of teams. And opportunities will come and go. And I feel like he had an opportunity. Now, talking about another driver that's uh, enjoyed a, a very successful stint since 2017 and won uh, a bunch of Constructors World Championships or helped uh, contribute to, to them, won a bunch of races, uh, none other than uh, one of our favorite drivers on this show, Valtteri Bottas, <laughs> who's, you know, taken one of those two seats at Alfa uh, Romeo. Bottas. Anyways, yes, we we do. I mean, we this is all tongue planted firmly in cheek. Anyways, Valtteri has been talking about the the new 2022 cars, which he's had a chance to uh, drive both the Mercedes and the Alfa Romeo simulators. And he feels that uh, that that at least from a driver's uh, standpoint, that is not going to be radically different than what uh, that we're, we're we're already getting. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Valtteri had to say, quote, at least at that point, it feels like the cars are a bit off in terms of downforce. But the overall feeling, at least in the sim, and that's a key takeaway, wasn't that dissimilar in either of the simulators. We can't simulate following the other cars and stuff like that, but it's not that crazy different. Maybe still a lot, a bit less downforce, but like I said, that will change, end quote. So this is interesting when you compare it to what Lando Norris, who uh, what he had to say. He said that uh, he was comparing the, the the new cars, at least how he's experienced them in the sim, as being more like a, a Formula One, or sorry, a Formula Two car than a Formula One car. And uh, a little bit uh, where you're fighting the car and you're, you're really having to, to really physically handle it a lot more than, say, the, the, the Formula One car. So those are two preliminary and early, I don't want to say judgments, but observations from, from two very capable and very good Formula One drivers. So it'll be interesting to see what other guys uh, have to say over the weeks and months ahead. And, you know, especially when we get to, to, to testing in, what, about six weeks time? Man, I don't even, dude, I don't even think it's that. I think we're 55 days away from a Grand Prix. Something like that, yeah. Grand Prix. Yeah, that winter testing is going to come fast. But I think one of the things that I had started to make peace with was as we go into 2022 and the new formula comes into the effect, comes into the effect, comes into effect, and we've got these vastly more standardized cars. And we're also talking about an era of a cost cap. I think a lot of us had made peace with the fact that we were saying goodbye to peak Formula One in terms of raw performance, in terms of lap times, in terms of downforce, acceleration, and cornering, that we were saying goodbye to peak F1, that these new cheaper, more standardized F1 cars are going to be great. They're going to create some more competitive parity. They're going to create some more competitive balance, but they're not going to be as fast. And I think early on, the talk was, hey, they could be five seconds a lap slower. So on TV, are we going to notice that? Probably not, but they're significantly slower potentially than what we see last year and this year, which some Mm -hmm. people would argue is peak F1. 
I think what we're going to discover is that maybe they're not five seconds off, maybe they're one or two, and then maybe by the end of next year, maybe they're on par, and there's some analysts and some leaks coming out of some teams that the expectation is that at least for some teams, the cars could be at par or even exceed the performance of this year's car, which is truly remarkable considering the fact that they are being developed with significantly more standardized parts Mm -hmm. and under a cost cap. So if we ultimately end up with a car that's even relatively close to the performance of these cars at a vastly reduced cost, Mm -hmm. I think that's a good news for everybody because it means that all of the teams, Haas and Williams and Alfa Romeo, can compete at a much higher level. So I think that's a good news story, especially when you also consider the fact that they're going to be rocking 18-inch wheels. And I think it's important to understand that the the challenge of an 18-inch wheel is you increase unsprung weight on the car. So unsprung weight is the weight that's not carried by the car suspension. So it's rotational mass. Bigger wheels are actually hugely detrimental to the raw acceleration, deceleration of a car Mm -hmm. because the car has to turn those wheels and turn that weight. And an extra pound of weight on a wheel is I don't even know, 50, 100 pounds of mass in the car, something crazy like that. So that's not a good news story. But if we're going to land in a place where potentially these cars are relatively close to parity, that's a really cool and exciting story. And the more I hear about people getting a taste of the cars in the in the simulator, and the more I hear from teams speaking about their expectations of their 2022 contenders mm-hmm. for next year, the more I get excited. Oh, me too. Absolutely. Really, really looking forward to uh, to, to the new cars. Can't wait till they uh, take the track and just literally weeks uh, from now. Next story. This is an interesting one. <clears throat> and this comes from um, a Japanese uh, engine manufacturer, the very well-known and uh, accomplished Honda. And uh, this is their F1 uh, program uh, director, uh, Masashi Yamamoto, who felt that there was too much mutual respect between themselves and McLaren in the recent failing of their partnership when, uh, well, we all know where that that, that went sideways. They uh, reunited Honda supplied uh, McLaren again with engines starting 2015 after they had a phenomenal but fairly brief run in the mid 80s to the early 90s when they won multiple, multiple drivers and world uh, constructors uh, uh, championships and uh, we, we just all felt this was like a natural thing that was uh, going to you know it was going to bring success but obviously it did not work out this way Honda came to this turbo hybrid era somewhat behind the curve compared to everyone else uh, despite coming in a, a year later in 2015 compared to 2014 but just in terms of development they were more than a country mile behind uh, anyone else Anyways, uh, Yamamoto had to say, quote, starting from McLaren days, we have learned a lot from them, but I think we had a mutual respect too much. That's why we had maybe a shortness, a little bit of communication, and it was a shame that the project didn't go well, end quote. So that's kind of an interesting quote. Um, I'm not really too sure what to to take away from that, but uh, perhaps uh, they were... They feel that they were maybe a bit too polite in the way that they maybe weren't as forceful enough uh, in their partnership with, with Honda or sorry, with McLaren or they see kind of suggesting that maybe that the McLaren walked over them a little bit. So you, oh my gosh. So you absolutely just nailed it. And you're right. You know, Honda was a big part of F1 in the late eighties, early nineties. <clears> they had some tremendous success. They left in 92. They came back in the early two thousands. They had two teams at one point. They left during the financial crisis. They came back for 2015. And to your point, they came back 
at a time when the sport had possibly, uh, that's not even fair. They came back at a time when the sport had absolutely the most complex and sophisticated power unit in its history. And I think the Honda experience was a huge turnoff for the Volkswagen group. And one of the reasons why they weren't willing to come into the sport until the engine formula was simplified. But what you spoke to now was absolutely McLaren walked all over them. And by that, what I mean is McLaren was in a position where there weren't a ton of engine suppliers willing to work with them, Mm -hmm. nor willing to work with their requirements. So Honda came along, they were going to be an exclusive supplier to McLaren. So McLaren used this as a leverage or an opportunity to walk all over them. And by that, what I mean is McLaren, which is the car developer, was dictating, at least this is what's been reported, they were dictating to Honda how to build the engine. So again, they were working with Honda, who was the engine supplier, but they were dictating to Honda how the engine should be built. And that is a recipe for failure right away. Mm-hmm. And when they are saying, hey, there was too much mutual respect, it's absolutely what you said, which was Honda should have pushed back from day one and said, what you are asking of us, the size zero concept is not realistic in 2015. We are not there. We cannot build what you're asking for. So the the relationship became toxic. It became untenable. And surprise, surprise, as soon as Honda leaves McLaren and they have the freedom to develop the power unit on their own in partnership with Red Bull, they have tremendous success. And I saw this comment on on Reddit earlier today that, that really struck me. Since the since the divorce, since the two teams went their separate way, McLaren is on their second power unit supplier. So they had to go to Renault. Then they bounced to Mercedes. They've won one race. Honda has now won a championship. They won a driver's championship this year. So it really speaks to what that relationship was right. And yeah. I think by saying, hey, there was too much mutual respect, it was they were being far too forceful and we were being far too polite and we should have pushed back from day one. Well, that, that just, uh, you know, that just kind of building on that just uh, goes to show the amount of work that Zach Brown has done since he came in and took that organization by the uh, by, by the scruff of the neck, more or less, and uh, has really cleaned houses, appointed some very good people in some very key positions. And, the you know, I mean, obviously they haven't won a championship like uh, Honda did this year with Red Bull. You know, the, the signs are a lot better now in 2021 one than they were in 2015, 16, 17, when, when, when Zach Brown first got to McLaren. And I, I'm much more confident in the future of that team uh, moving forward. Now talking about another blast from the past and uh, a, a former rival, well, still probably a rival of McLaren, but especially in their heyday, and that's uh, Williams. And their uh, team principal, Jos Capito, says that uh, there will be no uh, designated number one driver next year in their pairing of uh, Nicholas Latifi and Alex Albon. I think this is a great move. Both of these guys have fairly similar experience in, in Formula One. Alex has had a bit more of a high profile time in Formula One going through the um, the Red Bull system and some of the stops that he's had along the way, but he's uh, had a year out. And uh, Nicholas has had, what, two years in Formula One now with Williams. They're both similar in age. I think Nikki's 20, no, Nikki's 26. I think Alex is 25 or the other way around. So, I mean, you know, why not? I mean, this is a team, we've seen a little bit more promising things from them uh, this year. And, you know, with the, 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 the new ownership that's been there for, what, a little bit more than a year now? I think that um, hopefully better days are, you know, in store for them. But I think this, I think this is a good move. Let, let them do their speaking on the track. Let, let, the, let the order within the team, let them find their own equilibrium. I completely agree. 
as much as they may indicate at this point that there's no lead driver, there's no number one driver, let's just be aware that that could change over the course of the season. Yep. If we see one of those drivers dominating qualifying or dominating in terms of race positioning and race classification over the first quarter or first half of the season, that could change pretty quickly. But sure. also, I don't think any of us expect this team to necessarily be competing for a championship this year. So it's not like we're going to encounter a situation where the team has to pull team orders or something like that during a race that might create some of those complexities and friction in the relationship. I think these two drivers are friends. They've got a relationship, a ton of mutual respect. I'm really excited to see what happens with this team. And I think we started to see some real flash out of Nikki last year in terms of his development. And I think last year, simply because the Williams car was relatively uncompetitive versus the mm -hmm. field, his real frame of reference was George Russell. And I think as the season progressed, we started to see those qualifying gaps in those race pace gaps mm -hmm. close inch by inch by inch. So it'll be really interesting to see how Nikki continues to develop against an established F1 driver. And I think this move is also really good for Nikki because I think what would have been bad for Latifi is the team brings in a rookie. And I think what's been yeah. really great for Latifi's development is he's had an extremely talented driver in his garage with them and somebody that was setting the bar, somebody he could learn from, someone whose data he could look at to improve his own racecraft. So I'm excited for Latifi that there's a driver in the garage that he has a relationship with, but somebody who's also an established driver. Yep. So these two should be competing and pushing each other race over race over race. Yeah, absolutely. It should be an interesting partnership and an interesting team to watch in uh, 22. And finally, this is one, this is the, the team that disappointed us oh so much in 2021. And this is uh, Aston Martin. I think this, this was our pick uh, for, for the team that uh, that we both personally wanted to, to, to get behind uh, last year. What with the, the Canadian connection, both on and off the track, with a four-time world champion in the, that car as well. And they just uh, really disappointed. Anyways... Uh, team principal Otmar Safnauer had to say recently, quote, what happened this year that we confirmed our preseason worries that the unilateral aerodynamic changes that we uh, were made late in the season had a massive effect on us and Mercedes. But the midfield was so tight, the lap time that we lost, 7, 8, 9 tenths of a second per lap, depending on what track we were at, moved us from the third fastest car to about the sixth or seventh fastest car. With Mercedes, they lost two because of the aerodynamic philosophy they run, but that just moved them from always being on pole to now fighting for the championship. For us, I think it had a much, much bigger impact, and because of it, and because of the 22 regulations being completely different, we had to switch early on to focus all of our attention on 22 and leave 21 at that time, end quote. So I think that's a, a pretty, pretty blunt and open admission from, from Otmar that just uh, how... How, how handicapped and, and how handcuffed they were the entire season uh, last year and just uh, how far it put them back in the running order. But uh, I'm, I'm encouraged because I think that they're doing some good things off of the track. And I'm really, really keen to see what their challenger for 2022 is going to be like, how this car performs. Because last year, they were always going to be fighting a losing battle, just how those arrow changes, those those new regs for last year really, really, really pushed them into a corner. There's lots of reasons to be excited going into 2022. And I think this is one of them. 
Obviously, Lawrence Stroll has poured hundreds of millions of dollars into building up that team and developing their new 400,000 square foot factory and complex at, at Silverstone. I think you and I were disappointed, and I think you and I were probably a little bit misguided in our predictions and our optimism <laughs> I think for the so. team, simply because we didn't recognize and we should have recognized that those unilateral, as Snafnauer says, those unilateral changes to the aero regulations, we should have recognized and appreciated that those would have had a significant impact on the team. And while they had a significant impact on the Mercedes team, Mercedes contending for two championships simply continued to invest and invest and invest in that car, where with Aston Martin, there was a point where, you know, we could invest a ton of money and maybe we're competing for fifth or fourth. And is the ROI, is the return on investment worth it? Or should we commit all the resource that we do have into developing our 2022 car and come Mm -hmm. out in 2022 flying? And ultimately they made the decision that, hey, look, you know what? 2021 is an anomaly. We're not going to be hyper competitive no matter what we do. The arrow regs are just too much of a drag, no pun intended, on us. Let's go all in on 2022. So this is a team that spared no expense for their 2022 challenger, and I'm super excited. And Haas did something similar, although I don't think there was any expectations of them coming into this campaign, but they spent (laughs) nothing on their 2021 car. In fact, carried over their 2022 car in whole with the plan to spend all their resources on the 2022 challenger. So again, it was unfortunate. I think some of us had high high expectations given that they finished fourth in the constructors in 2020 but maybe 2022 we'll see uh, a return to form or a I would say a strong, a stronger campaign that we saw this year. I would add as well, and I thought this was great, but back in the late summer on the Beyond the Grid podcast, Lawrence Stroll was was asked, like, hey, do you expect to win championships or is that the ultimate goal? And his perspective or his take was, look, you know what? This entire mission, this entire Formula One enterprise, we don't need to win a championship for it to be successful. We just have to be able to compete for championships every year and every race weekend. And hopefully that's where they'll be next year. Yeah, absolutely. And talk about the need for having, uh, you know, a stronger and more competitive campaign. That's definitely where you and I are looking uh, towards uh, personally for this (laughs) podcast uh, for for next year. But uh, joking aside... Well, I think that's about all we have time for this week. Uh, a bit of a, a longer and unexpected uh, program here in the middle of the holidays. And I think uh, we were either prepared or, you know, expecting. <laughs> no, Are I we mean, ever prepared? Well, no, not really. But uh, I mean, uh, there, there was a little bit more news that had kind of percolated know, up over the, the clock. Yeah, yeah, just uh, over the, the, the past week or so, which is a little bit unusual for this time of year. But considering everything that's uh, transpired recently, and perhaps that's not so much of a, a big surprise, or maybe this is the, the the way it is for Formula One, the way that it literally exploded into the sporting consciousness over the past uh, 12 months, that maybe the, uh, the, the news cycle for Formula One is going to be a lot more, maybe not 24-7, 365, but uh, hopefully it'll be more 365 than it was in uh, years gone by, so... Before we before we drop off and you turn off the lights and kick me out of the virtual studio, <laughs> what do you? How are you? How are you spending your your New Year's Eve? <clears throat> I'm not sure yet. I think it's going to be quiet. I think it's going to be uh, at home here, probably with uh, just the family. Maybe we'll do something quiet. Maybe we'll have dinner with the uh, the the in laws. We'll we'll wait and see. How about yourselves? Probably the same. Probably going to keep it pretty tight and a little bit compact this yeah. year. It's on a Friday, which perfect works perfectly, and we get Monday off, so we've got a nice three-day weekend. But yeah, probably going to keep it a little bit light, and over the next couple of days, I am working, but I'll spend my evenings watching Selling Sunset Season 4 and enjoying nice. absorbing the first season of Selling Tampa. There you go. That's where I am in my life now. <laughs> well, there's definitely a lot worse places uh, to be, so enjoy that and enjoy the rest of uh, the time off that you have, and, and the same to all of you. And 
behalf of myself and uh, Mr. Hamilton, uh, we'd like to wish you all a very happy, healthy, and prosperous uh, 2022. I can't believe it. I feel like we only just started 2021. This year went by in the blink of the eye. It was uh, astonishing. Anyways, thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch, I promise we'll get to emails next time around. Just uh, what with the holidays and everything, just haven't had a chance to uh, to read out any on the show or respond to any. So have read them all. Appreciate them all. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely address them all very, very soon. And until next time, like I say, if you want to send an email, please do scooteryf1pod at gmail.com. If you want to uh, get in touch on Twitter, do so at scooteryf1pod. And that's it. That's a wrap. Take care. Bye for now. We'll talk to you soon.